Can we read from the Bible? Let's do it. Let's go to Matthew 27. As we journey towards Easter, we're looking at these moments of Jesus' life, of his ministry, just at the very end that bring him to the cross. Tonight, we're going to start, we're not going to read all of what's going to appear on the screen. We're going to start on verse 45. Listen now for the Word of God. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came and covered all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. They filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. We're going to stop there for now. Let's pray. And then we're going to to press into these words a bit. Let's pray. Lord, you invite us to come and sit at your feet and listen to your voice. Like a parent telling a story to a child, you invite us to come and to hear your words that bring life, that bring hope, that bring healing, that bring transformation. You thought I sensed tonight there, there's distraction in the room. Maybe it's tiredness. Maybe it's busyness of the season. Maybe it's just the, the layout of the church feels different tonight. And so we pause just for a moment. We recognize, Holy Spirit, that you are here. And we lay our distractions. We lay our burdens. We we take our guilt and our shame and we lay them at your feet. Because we come to listen for your voice, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, man. I'm going to grab my water. Sponsored by Alpha. Look at that there. Do anything for a free water bottle. <laughs> uh, I want to tell you a story as we start. But five years ago, uh, my brother-in-law and his then fiance got married in this beautiful, I should have brought a picture. I'm really sorry I did. In this beautiful villa in Italy, in Tuscany. 
Any bit in Tuscany? Give us a wave. Yeah. It's cracking, isn't it? It's really nice. It's special. This thing is like a palace place. They got married. It was this big villa, slept 30 people, top of a hill, trees around it, big private swimming pool. And they brought family and friends. I said they brought, we paid our own way. We went out with them uh, to the villa. And it was such a good week, such a good week. Um, but one of the memories I have is Karis five years ago was about four four, four, five, and that's our oldest daughter, and she was learning to swim. And the pool, you know, you go to the pool here, and there's the kiddie pool, which is kind of, you know, this deep, and this much of it's water, and this much of it is pee. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and then you go into the bigger pool, and the bigger pool's like a shelf. I'm just saying, it's true. And, and you, you go, it's like a shelf, and it's really shallow at one end. You walk in, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this pool in, in Tuscany wasn't like a shelf. You just got in, and it was deep from the start. So when you're four years old, it's not ideal. So she was okay with armbands on, but in those moments when she was learning to swim without her armbands on, you know, she's standing here, and the water level's here, you know. So we had to be in the pool with her. And we were teaching her to swim, and she had the head down, and she was going and going and going. And I would walk so she's swimming this way, and I, I would walk just at her head, and my hand just at her head like this. Now, I wasn't touching her. And probably some of the time she was a bit scared because she didn't know I was there. You know, she couldn't see me because of all the splashing and bubbles. And every now and again, she would look, Daddy, Daddy, I, I would just grab her. I'm right here, pet. I'm right here. And then we'd go again, and she'd be swimming, and I'd be... And there was moments it felt like I wasn't with her. But was she ever in danger? Was there ever a moment I was going to let her go? Was there? Absolutely not. I think as we step into this text tonight, it's really important you hold that picture of Karis and me, her dad, in your mind. It's really important. Because what we want to do tonight is look at some of the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. And what Matthew tells us here, um, darkness came over the whole land. We've had the, the Last Supper. We've had the Garden of Gethsemane. We've had the betrayal. We've had the trials. Jesus has been beaten and tortured and flogged. He, he's crawled through the streets of Jerusalem with people mocking him, dragging the crossbeam of the cross on his shoulders. He's got to Golgotha, the hill of the skull. They've driven nails through his wrists. They've driven nails through his feet. They've put the cross up and dropped it into the ground. So if his shoulders haven't dislocated, they've come close to it. Matthew tells us that from 12 noon until 3 o'clock, darkness came over the whole land. And we don't know what the darkness was, whether it was some kind of eclipse, whether it was to do with clouds and climate. We, we don't know what it was. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention the darkness because they want us to know that in this moment there's a sign of cosmic grief. 
They want us to know in this moment there's a, there's a sense of God's judgment looming, pending. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus says these words that, that I find so haunting. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If any of you know your Bibles, uh, you'll know this is a quote from Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22 is pretty much the story of the cross prophesied hundreds of years before the crucifixion ever happened. But in those moments of agony when he's been hanging on the cross for hours, Jesus, and I, I think this is spectacular, he quotes Scripture. These verses that he's memorized probably as a child, he, he quotes them to give expression to how he's feeling in that moment. And I think just as an aside, I want to encourage you not just to read your Bibles, but to take it into your memory, to allow yourself to memorize parts of the Bible, because not only does memorization of Scripture give us a vehicle for understanding who God is and recognizing who God is, Scripture gives us a language for encounter in every season of life. And in these moments of agony on the cross, Jesus doesn't need to use his own words. He picks up the Father's words. From Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's something about that. There's something we need to to get back to about memorizing Scripture. But what's going on here? What's going on when Jesus, the Son of God, who has existed in the presence of God as part of the Trinity for all eternity, has never known a moment separated from God? What is going on when he utters these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John tells us that... um, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that sounds kind of strange to us, but you have to understand that in the original context of of the Jewish people, uh, and it ties back to a practice they had in Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Some of you will have heard of this, some of you won't, so pardon me if I'm telling you something you already know. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats, and one of the goats, he would place his hands over and he would pray. And it was a symbolic act to transfer the sins of the people of Israel onto this goat. And then the goat would literally be taken off into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. That the sins of the people were transferred onto the goat and it was sent off into the wilderness. The other goat was taken in the temple. It was, it, it was killed. And the high priest on this one day of the year was permitted to go into the inner part of the temple. Gary preached a blinder on this last week. Pick up the podcast and hear about it. Um, The high priest would go into the inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where we literally believe the presence of God dwelt. And he would take the blood of this goat and he would sprinkle it on the altar and he would sprinkle it around And what was going on with those two goats is 
One goat was carrying the sins of the people away, and the blood of the other goat was speaking forgiveness, was bringing forgiveness over the people. And what's fascinating in that is that they use goats because the Lamb of God was not yet ready. But here, 2,000 years ago, at the cross, Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not a symbolic action that needs done every year, but a once and for all perfect sacrifice where Jesus has taken all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of your sin, all of my sin, onto himself. Isaiah 53 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of your sin was laid upon Jesus in that moment. We can't even comprehend what that must have been like. We can't even begin to. Like, think about the things you've done this week. Think about the things you've thought this week. Allow the guilt of that just to connect with your soul for a second. Think of the opportunities to do good where you've, where you've withheld it. Think of the words you've spoken in anger, the thoughts you've thought. In those moments, Jesus felt every single one of those. And not just for a day or for a week, but for your whole life. Jesus carried all of that brokenness, all of that sin. And not just, you guys are fairly good people, I'm guessing. He carried both the pain of the kid who was abused And at some point, the remorse of the abuser. And he carried the contradiction of that in himself. He carried the agony of concentration camp victims. And the guilt of Nazi soldiers who at the end of their life acknowledged what they'd done. He carried that on himself in that moment. There has never been anyone in history who has carried so much brokenness and agony. We talk about the physical punishment Jesus endured. It was nothing compared to his heart, compared to his soul in that moment. And the one who has existed for all eternity before the face of the Father in the presence of God utters these words in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question I want to pose tonight, because it's really important, is it possible that an omnipresent God, a God who is everywhere all of the time, is it possible that an omnipresent God was not there in that moment? Is it possible to be so bad or so broken that God isn't there? Is it possible that our disobedience can deconstruct God's character? You see, the only way I can understand this quote that Jesus comes out with is, is the idea, and, and we've talked about this before, but I think we need to keep pressing into this, guys, uh, is this idea of omnipresence and manifest presence. 
omnipresence and manifest presence, this omnipresent idea that God is everywhere all of the time, in every, in every moment, in every sphere, throughout history, all at once, God is fully present. That is what we believe. That is what Orthodox Christianity teaches, that God is everywhere all of the time. But when we read through Scripture, we see the manifest presence of God, as if there are moments where God just seems to gaze more intently, where God seems to move more powerfully in a moment. And we see lives change, and we see people give their lives to Him and experience forgiveness and love and peace and healing and transformation. My best mate, um, a few years ago, he lost his dad. Um, he's the first one of our circle of friends to lose a parent. Um, so it was really quite a profound experience for all of us as well. But he lost his dad. And the guy's a pastor. He's, he loves Jesus. He's, he's one of the best speakers, communicators I know. Um, but his dad died. And him talking and saying that in, in the wake of his dad's death, for weeks, even months afterwards, it, it was as if he felt numb inside. He struggled to pray, and, and when he prayed, he felt like he was praying to a closed ceiling. His heart felt cold, hard, wooden. He wasn't experiencing love. He wasn't experiencing, he wasn't hearing God speaking to him. wasn't experiencing God. Now tell me, what do you know of God? Was God absent from him? No, of course not. God is everywhere all of the time. He's, he's, he's fully present everywhere all of the time. What, what my friend was experienced was an absence of the manifest presence of God, but God was still with him. God was still with him. Of course he was. And sometimes suffering can have that effect on our lives, that it blinds us to the presence of God. Other times, sin can have that effect in our lives, that it blinds us to the presence of God. Uh, that's why the psalmist says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in that holy place, who may, may see and encounter and know and, and hear from God, only those whose, whose hands and hearts and lips are clean. Because sin can blind us to the presence of God. Busyness can do the same thing as well. We can get so busy that we, that we just stop experiencing God. We stop turning to Him and looking to Him. Our, our lives are so consumed with other things and other thoughts. That's why the Scriptures say, be still and know that I am God. Guys, we are a church that hungers for the presence of God. We are a church that, that, that hungers. We, we prioritize this. Our, our session have said, this is what we're about. We're a church that hungers for the presence of God because we know that in the presence of God, lives change. In the presence of God, we experience His love. We experience His peace. We see lives and communities and cities transformed. We see minds and bodies healed. We are a church that, that hungers for the presence of God. But here's the thing promise of God will always be stronger than the, 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 the promise of God 
will always be stronger than the presence of God. Because even in those moments where you don't feel God, God is still there. Even in those moments where you don't feel God, His Word will endure beyond your feelings, beyond your experience. We put our faith in God. We put our faith in God's Word. And in moments, we get to gaze on His face. In moments, we get to experience His presence. Does that make sense? And so the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence? Where, where can I escape it? If I go to the heavens, if I make my bed in the depths, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand, your presence, your spirit will hold me. Psalm 16 talks, prophesies about this moment of Jesus' death and says he will not abandon his holy one to the grave. He will not let him see decay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hasn't abandoned Jesus. What is happening is in the experience of suffering and the experience of sin have become like a dark cloud around Jesus. And for the first time in his existence, he is not experiencing the presence of God. But God is still with him. God is still with him. Why? Because Scripture says so because the Word says so. That's really important, guys, tonight. It's really important. For some of you that you grasp this. Because some of you, in the season that you're in, and maybe it's felt like a long season, maybe it's felt like a real wilderness, have been struggling to connect with God. For some of you, it's because of grief that you've been through. And, and maybe, maybe that person who, who passed out, maybe it was ages ago, but, but the pain of it still lingers really strongly. And, and since that happened, it's felt like God's been distant. It's felt like God's been cold towards you. For others, it's, it's for different reasons. For disappointment for fear. Maybe it's just felt like that prayer you've been praying just hasn't been answered. Feels like you're throwing them up and they're just falling back down. And God wants you to know that He is with you. And just because you're not experiencing, He wants you to know that He is with you. And his word says, there is nowhere you can be that he is not. If I go up to the heavens, if I make my bed in the depths, if I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there, even in grief, even in disappointment, even in fear, God is with you. God is with you. One of the most common promises in the Bible is, is do not be afraid or fear not. And the thing that follows it every time, because I am with you. The Lord your God is with you. Because I am with you. And I just really believe tonight that God needs some of you to hear that. That you feel 
like Jesus on the cross. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you not answering these prayers? And he's saying, just hang on there. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's really important that you you have that deep assurance, you have that theological that place to stand, that promise in God's Word to stand upon. It's really important because I want to bring you a little bit deeper into that place of disappointment, into that place of, of pain in your life. And most of us have something like this. Most of us have a, a place that, that we've covered over or try not to think about or, or try just to survive on the fringes of. But tonight as we come to the cross, I, I want you to bring that place just to the front of your mind. I want to read from another part of the Bible. This is from John, chapter 19. And just a couple of verses. Some more words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Picture him there. We're told near the cross, this is from verse 25, near the cross, Jesus, cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, Jesus is on the cross, he looks down, he sees his mom, When he sees his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, the disciple is John. To John, he says, here is your mother. And from that time on, his disciple took her into his home. Jesus is on the cross. He's beaten Life is ebbing out of his body. He's experiencing that dark night of the soul, all this turmoil, that that, that feeling of separation from God. And he looks down from the cross, and there at the foot are this small pocket of people whom he loves, who have been with him and whom he loves so much. And in the middle of them, he sees his mom. I think it's just a really human scene, isn't it? There's something just really beautiful and yet profoundly painful about it, yeah? He sees his mom. And we're not told this, but entering into the story, can you imagine how Mary felt in that moment as she looked up at the cross and saw her son? Anybody who's ever nursed a sick child has experienced something of what Mary's feeling in that moment. Just allow yourself to imagine how she was feeling. And for Jesus on the cross, in those moments of suffering, in those moments of pain, in those moments of grief, in those moments of disappointments, there's a temptation either to collapse in on ourselves, woe is me, my life is horrible, my life is... Or to try everything we can to escape from that moment. Isn't that right? Collapse in in self-pity. 
or just try to escape the moment wherever possible. But I want you to look at these words that Jesus speaks. He looks to his mom and he says, Mom, see John here? He's now going to be your son. He looks at John and he says, John, this lady, I want you to treat her like your own mother. From his place of pain, he ministers to his mom in her brokenness to ease her pain. From his place of pain, he eases her pain. Do you see that? I think it's incredibly beautiful moments. You see, it's easy to minister to other people in their grief, in their pain, in their disappointment from a place of strength. I've been around Orangefield for eight or nine months. I, what I see is people have really generous hearts. You know, all I have to do is say somebody's been in hospital, somebody's struggling, somebody, so, somebody's really, whatever it is, whatever it is, going through something. And people are responding. Can, can I drop food around? Can I, can I pray? Can I go visit? Can I cut their grass? Can I just, people are looking for ways to help. There's such generosity of heart in this place. But it's easy to be generous from a place of strength. It's easy to minister to others from a place of well-being and strength and soundness. But to minister from a place of brokenness to minister when you feel like your own life is falling apart, to reach out to somebody else when you feel like you have nothing left to give. It's the story of the widow's might, isn't it? When she had nothing left to give and yet she still dug deep and gave what she had to bless, to minister to others. First time I experienced this, um, was actually when our son, Archie, was really, really small. Um, most of you know the story. Uh, not all of you maybe do. Uh, when he was born, he had a, a bleed on his brain uh, that left him with profound brain damage. It left him with severe epilepsy, with developmental delay. Uh, his condition was called West Syndrome. It, it, it was horrendous. He spent four and a half months in hospital in his first year. Uh, he was back and forward to Great Ormond Street. We, we didn't know at times whether he was going to live or die. And in the midst of it all, I was still working as an assistant minister in Cumber in County Down. And I remember going to visit this house where there was a girl who was mid-40s who was really unwell. She had cancer. And I visited the house, and I'd been calling there for a while, and, and, and she was always so grateful to see us. And, and her mom was always so grateful to see us. But her dad, there was, there was a hostility there. He hadn't been around church for years. He, he wasn't open to God at all. But that day I went in and, and I sat down in the living room and the mom went down to make sure her daughter was okay to get visitors, was feeling okay. And I sat there and I was making small talk with the dad. And, and then there was a quietness. It just, you know, that awkward silence. You know, it just stretches. And after a minute, two minutes, he broke it and he said, you know what this is like. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know what it's like to sit at the bed of your child and not know whether they're going to live or die. I, I thought I had nothing to offer. 
I was holding on to life, not knowing what was happening in my own family. And in that moment, God used me in my pain to minister to him in his pain. God opened the door for grace and for love and for the gospel. What if, what if God doesn't simply want to take your pain away? What if he wants to redeem it? What if it's not about escape? What if it's about redemption? And sometimes that means healing. Sometimes we see people get healed. We absolutely do. But other times we don't. And it's as if God's doing something different. What if it can mean that God uses you in your pain to bring healing to somebody else? What if God doesn't waste anything? I've seen it here. I've seen it in my previous church in exactly the same way where a lady who has lost her husband and is experiencing just the most profound grief and struggling to, to get out and tr- struggling to reimagine what life is like after just so many years married and sharing life with the same partner. All of a sudden connects with another lady who has lost her husband, another widow. And in their place of pain, they, they, they form a friendship. From their shared experience comes an empathy that develops into a compassion, that develops into a love that brings hope. And they start to find a way through. Does that make sense? I think sometimes God does want to heal your pain, but other times I, I, I think... If, if you bring it to him as an offering, he wants to use it to, to reach out to somebody else in their story and use you to minister to them and bring help and hope and healing to them. Bill Johnston, who, who leads Bethel Church in America, um, I, I heard him share a story a while back. I was reminded of it again just this week. I'm going to share it with you as we finish tells a story about, um, I think it was his dad who, who, who was dying. He was on his deathbed. And the whole family had gathered around. And they'd been praying for healing for such a long time. And, and, and Bethel is this church that God's favor is on. And they're seeing incredible breakthrough and incredible healings come. But in this circumstance, it, the prayers weren't being answered in that way. And his dad was getting sicker and sicker. And it came towards the end, and, and the nurse had said, you know, we're moving into the last couple of hours. And they gathered around his bed, and his dad, who was in his bed, started just really weakly to sing. And Bill joined in, and somebody else joined. They were singing worship songs to God. In that moment of pain, in that moment of grief, they, they, they take their agony, and they, they find a way to worship God within it. And as Bill was sharing this story, he, 
he said something I'd never thought about before. He said, when we get to heaven, there's no more sickness, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears, there's no more sadness. And we get to worship God all the time. We get to join with the angels and the heavenly beings and worship God. And our lives there will be perfect and we get to worship a perfect God. We get to worship perfection from a place of perfection. But he says, now in this moment, on this earth, we get to do something that angels never get to do. We get to worship from a place of pain. And that is a distinctly different offering to God. We get to take our, our grief and we get to take our fear and we get to take our disappointment and we get to take the parts of our life that, that haven't turned out the way we long for them to turn out and we get to, to fall on our knees and lift up our hands and with tears running down our face, we get to say, God, I still choose you. I still choose you. I still choose you, God. And the only way we can do it is when we come to the foot of the cross and we realize this is the God who in the most profound pain and agony we could ever imagine chose us. He chose you and he chose you and he chose you and he died for you. And when he was taking his last breath, his thoughts were of you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing one song. Tonight, I want to simply give you space to sit at the foot of the cross. Tonight's teaching, tonight's text will have opened up all kinds of things in your heart. Will have opened up past griefs and hurts. Have you opened up words that have been spoken over you? Fears and disappointments, broken relationships. All the ways that your life hasn't turned out the way you hoped it would as you were starting off. And as we move into a time of worship, As you lift up words to God, I want to invite you to receive from him as well. Because I believe that he wants to minister to you tonight. He wants to meet with you in that place of pain. And to begin to redeem it. And to redeem you.